Thank you. Hey, um, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 3. We wrapped up chapter 2 last week as we talked about how God is building us and was building the early church into this structure, this building. Remember that, that he's, he's piecing it together brick by brick. We are the bricks. It's laid on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. And we talked about that last week, how Christ came and he tore down this wall of division between the Jews and the Gentiles. He's seeking to tear down those same walls in our lives today. Remember, we, we saw the video of the, the goofy uh, remodeled homes with the, uh, remember the one with the, uh, the flowers all over the walls downstairs and then the, the girls' bedroom where they had drawn on the walls. Have you done that to your walls yet, Brad? You shouldn't do that, okay? No, I forgot to. Okay, all right. Blue airhead, huh? You got a blue tongue. All right, so um, real quickly, we're going to jump into Ephesians chapter 3. I want us to read the first 13 verses, okay? We'll do the first 13 verses this week, and then next week we'll wrap up Ephesians 3 uh, with 14 through 21. But real quickly, Ephesians 3, 1 through 13, we're going to read this, and then um, we're going we're gonna to break it down real fast, okay? So Ephesians 3. 1 through 13, it says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the uh, working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you which is your glory. That is a lot of words by Paul right there. All right, yeah. All right, so what we're going to look at tonight, we're going to break all that down into six easy parts, okay? Six things, okay? And what I, what I want us to look at are six characteristics of a Christ-centered missionary, all right? So six characteristics of a Christ-centered missionary, okay? What Paul is writing about here to the church at Ephesus is he's really explaining to, to them who he is as a follower and a missionary of Jesus Christ. And he's, he's not only telling them, he's living it out. And we know he's living it out because he has been thrown in prison for the sake of the gospel. And also he's going to say for the sake of the Gentiles who needed to hear the gospel, who needed to be brought under the covenant of God the Father. And so we're going to look at six different things. All right, so the first one, okay, the first characteristic of a Christ-centered missionary is that they are surrendered to the will of Christ. They're surrendered to the will of Christ. Look back in verse 1. Okay, I know there's a lot of words. We're going to break it down a verse at a time. Verse 1 of chapter 3, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Paul has like two clauses here, two things. He says, one is that 
I'm a prisoner of Christ. A prisoner of Christ. Did Jesus lock Paul up? No. Who locked Paul up? Caesar. Does anybody know who was the Caesar, uh, the head of Rome at this point? It's a guy by the name, not little Caesar. That's funny, the pizza. Hilarious. Nero. Nero, who was, who was going to great lengths to persecute and kill Christians. Nero is the Caesar at this point, and Paul is in prison in Rome, and it's very shortly, within a couple of years after Paul writes this letter, that he's executed. And he, it's interesting here, Paul says, I am a prisoner of Christ. He doesn't mean that Jesus has locked him up. Caesar did that. But what he is saying is that the will of God is for him to be in prison. It's the will of God that brought Paul to the place he's in now. It's because Paul was willing to follow the will of Jesus Christ that he has now been locked up for the sake of the gospel. We sang this, the second song we sang tonight. Do you remember the second song? It, it talks about I'm going to see a victory, right? And, and it says in there, right, that you take what was meant for evil or what the enemy meant for evil and you what? You turn it for what? For good. For the good of whom? What do you think that song's about? Yeah, ultimately, what God does, what God says in his word is not that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn it into good for you. What he says is I'm going to turn it into good for my kingdom. Sometimes we are the direct beneficiaries of that. Sometimes, though, listen to me, don't miss this, please. Sometimes it, it costs us for the sake of the kingdom. You think Paul was delighted to be in prison? When, when he was thinking, hey, what, what you meant for evil, Satan, God has turned into good. I'm so happy I'm in prison. No, what he's, what he's thinking and knowing and believing and trusting and then writing to the church at Ephesus is that the enemy meant my imprisonment for evil, but God's going to use it for good. The good of whom? In this case, the Ephesian church. If Paul's not sitting in a jail cell with nothing to do, Perhaps this letter isn't written. Perhaps God has Paul in prison so that the Ephesian church and all of Asia, by receiving this letter afterwards, they are benefiting greatly because Paul was faithful and then thrown in prison. And now, 2,000 years later, you and I sit in this room with all the fancy TVs and lights and sound and the great band and we ate pizza and barbecue, we enjoy getting to read about the grace of Jesus Christ that some dude wrote 2,000 years ago while he was in prison waiting to die. What the enemy meant for evil, God has used for good. There's a danger, guys, listen to me, there's a danger in thinking that when Scripture tells us that this is meant for good or whatever, that it's going to be like sunshine and rainbows and happy for me and, and blessings of money and vehicles and new iPhones and all this other kind of stuff, what God's Word says is that I'm going to turn what seems to be disastrous, what seems to be hopeless, and I'm going to turn it into something that's going to be beneficial for my kingdom. And if we have our joy in Jesus Christ and seeing God glorified, then that will be for our good. However, it won't seem very good if we're not rooted in that. If all we seek is for God to bless us with material things, then we're never going to see the good in the sacrifice of following God's will. But the Christ-centered missionary is so committed and surrendered to the will of God, even when disaster hits, 
God, I know this is difficult. God, I know that I'm going to have a hard time trudging through this. God, but I know that if I'm committed to following your will, you are going to work a miracle through it. And perhaps I'm not going to see the benefit of that today or tomorrow or next week or maybe ever on this earth. But I know that you are producing good through it. Prisoner of Christ. But also, he says, and I'm doing this on behalf of whom? On behalf of you Gentiles. Paul is suffering in prison and about to die for the Gentiles. Was Paul a Gentile? No. Paul is surrendered to the will of God and willing to suffer on behalf of not his own people, of another group of people. Remember, Paul grew up Jewish, and he's, he's reading and memorizing and learning the Old Testament, where God has chosen for himself a group of people, the Jews, the Israelites. And then Paul encounters Jesus, and now he's willing to sacrifice everything he has including his very life and freedom for the sake of the gospel, even if it means reaching people that aren't his own people. Paul is radically surrendered to the will of Christ. And so too, as followers of Christ, as missionaries for Christ, we today, 2,000 years later, must be surrendered to the will of Christ. Jump down to verse 13. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul's not waiting to receive anything here on this earth for what he's doing. He says, I'm suffering on your behalf, and ultimately, your people will receive the glory and honor, and God will receive glory for the sacrifice I'm making. We have to be very careful that we don't do things to get things. Doesn't mean that God won't bless us along the way. But the problem is when we do things expecting something in return. Well, I'm going to do this because I'm going to receive this back. You might. Right? You might receive the blessing of seeing someone benefit or be touched or be transformed as a result of your faithfulness. And there's nothing wrong with celebrating that. There's nothing wrong with, there's nothing inherently wrong with having stuff or possessions. I'm not telling you to sell all your possessions and go be a monk. But what I'm saying is when we seek to do things for a return, Right? That's self-centeredness. When we seek to do things to glorify God and because we love people, that's Christ-centeredness. Okay? And there's a difference. So the first thing is that a Christ-centered missionary is surrendered to the will of God. The second thing is that a Christ-centered missionary understands the message of Christ. Paul talks a lot here about this idea of this mystery being revealed to him. Okay? In, in verse 2, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. So when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. I use that word again. Which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Verse 6, this is important. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus, through the gospel. Simply put, the mystery that has been revealed to Paul is the gospel message. That Jesus Christ came and died for all of humanity and was resurrected, thus defeating sin and death. And if you believe in Jesus and surrender your life to him, you might be saved. 
That's this mystery that has been revealed. And he says it hasn't been revealed in previous times because the, the Israelites were following under this assumption that God had chosen them and them only. Even though the Old Testament does tell us that God is going to reach out to the Gentiles eventually. But Paul's saying this truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ has been revealed to me and to these other apostles. Paul understands the message of the gospel. And it's important, vital for us to understand the gospel message if we're going to live on mission for Jesus Christ. And maybe I should have started off with this, but if you are a Christ follower, you have been called and commanded to be on mission for Jesus Christ. It's not like something like a voluntary thing, right? We're familiar with Matthew 28. We're familiar with Acts 1-8, right? That, that we are called to go to the nations to point them in the direction of Jesus Christ. But Paul says, hey, it's important for us to understand the message of the gospel. How many of you have a math class right now that you're taking? Who's got the, who's uh, in the, like the highest math? What's the highest math somebody's in right now? Is somebody in, uh, in trig? We got trig going on, algebra two, AP calc, you got calculus going on? Somebody got calculus? Who's in calculus? All right. So let's say Coleman, Coleman I know understands calculus, right? Who is terrified of ever having to take calculus? All right. Lance, not to pick on you, but your hand went up first, okay? Let's say that Lance volunteers his time and says, hey, look, I'm going to go tutor kids in calculus. He has a willingness. He surrendered to serving people by teaching them calculus. Awesome. But Lance shows up to the tutoring session, and they're like, hey, here's my book. This is what we're working on. And Lance says, <laughs> I don't know anything about calculus, but I'm willing to tutor you in calculus. What's going to happen to the kid he's tutoring? He's going to fail. Why? Because Lance doesn't know anything about calculus. Right? Exactly. So it's, it's great to be surrendered to the will of God. It's necessary. It's absolutely necessary. Guys, but look at me. You know what else is necessary? is understanding the gospel. Because you can be willing to take a message, but if you don't understand the message, you're not doing anyone any good. It's, it's like the kid that goes and says, hey, I'll, I'll teach you the ways of calculus. Right? By the way, what's calculus? Right? It'd be like daily grace, like teaching somebody how to play ice hockey. She might be willing, but all she knows how to do is fight. Which I guess it's part of ice hockey, right? But she couldn't teach him anything else. She's willing, but she's not able. Paul understands the gospel message. And so while we aren't revealing some hidden mystery like Paul was, what we're called to do is to re-reveal that mystery, which is to say we are called to be able to communicate the gospel by our actions, by our words, right, by having conversations with people. What Scripture isn't saying is we don't have to be, uh, you know, expert theologians and be able to break down and parse Greek uh, words or Hebrew words or explain um, what um, substitutionary atonement is, right? What, what, what we are called to do is to be able to let people know what it looks like to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And Paul had the ability to do that. So we have to be surrendered to the will of Christ. We have to understand the message of Christ. Thirdly, we have to be overwhelmed by the grace of Christ. 
overwhelmed by the grace of Christ. Look at verse 7. Paul says, of this gospel, right, the gospel that we just realized we have to understand, Paul says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. Paul said he was made a minister of the gospel not because he was great at being a minister of the gospel, not because he was a great speaker, a great communicator, or knew everything there was to know about everything, but because God allowed him to be through his grace, which was given me by the working of his power, right? Not my power, his power. To me, though, I am the very least of all the saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul has this mindset where he believes in his heart that he gets to serve God, not that he has to serve God. Paul considers it a privilege to preach the gospel message, not some obligation or some check that he has to check off every day. Are there things in your life that you hate doing? How many of you love to make up your bed in the morning? Cool, two of you. I figured there'd be two or three of y'all, weirdos. All right, that's good. All right. Like, I'll just be honest with you. I'm going to keep it real. Um, I hate making up the bed because I'm like, I'm just going to lay in it later. I know some people, like, they like to be able to, they come back in need and they undo the car. I get it. I get why that's a thing for you. It's not a thing for me, right? There are other things that I hate to do. I don't like to wash dishes. You know, I, um, there, there are things that I do that I don't like to do right? There, there are just things in life that I don't like to do, but that I have to do. What Paul communicates to us is that because we understand the grace that we have been given, we have a desire to serve God. Remember in chapter 2, two weeks ago, or three, whenever we talked about the first part of chapter 2, Paul talks about how we were dead in our sin and our transgressions cut off, hopeless and helpless from God. And then we get to verse four and he says, but God being rich in mercy, offered up Jesus. Paul remembers that. Paul remembers that he has been given grace. And that's the only thing that number one has given him new life, but also it's what has given him his calling and his ability to preach the gospel. And guys, it's this ability to remember where we've come from that helps give us a perspective where we see this as an opportunity rather than an obligation. Right? We, we get to serve God. We get to serve not God. We get to serve the creator of the universe, the God that gives you breath every few seconds to sustain your life, you and I get to serve him. That's an incredible calling. And I know it's easy to forget and to lose sight of that. I do it all the time too. But when we're kind of trudging through life and it, and it's, and it just gets really mundane and, and it's like, ah, I got to do this and I got to go back and go to church and, oh, this person said something and I could really say something about Jesus here, but ah, what if I really want to? Got to go to choir practice again, Tony and his 75% attendance or whatever it is, right? I think he's dropped it down for y'all, all right? Whatever, whatever the case may be, 
I got to ride in Josh's van on leadership retreat, right? Whatever, whatever it is. You get to serve God, right? Are you overwhelmed by the grace of Jesus Christ? I'm going to tell you, when you stop and you think about how overwhelming the grace of Christ is, it'll propel you and give you energy to go in to serve God. All right, next, Paul also proclaims the incredible riches of Christ. It's very similar. It kind of builds off the last one. But look at the second half of verse 8. We just read it. We're going to read it again. To me, though, I am uh, the very least of all the saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, verse 9, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things. Paul has this incredible story to tell. You remember Paul's story? Right? He's a Pharisee. Remember, he was there holding everybody's cloaks as Stephen was stoned to death in Acts chapter 7. And then in Acts chapter 9, he's walking down the road to Damascus, and he's blinded by this light. He has this encounter with Jesus. He's blinded for a few days, but he ends up giving his life to Jesus Christ. He's baptized there, and he becomes the greatest minister of the gospel in in the history of, of the world. And Paul has this incredible story to tell, and he's excited to tell people about it, not just because he understands the grace that he's received, but also he has the desire to see other people's lives transformed. Do you have that desire? Do I have that desire where we're just ready to tell people about the incredible riches that are found in Jesus Christ? And when I say riches, know that that I mean eternal security with him, right? Obviously, there are other things that come with being a follower of Jesus Christ, but are you excited to share what you have been given in Jesus with other people? You've probably had something at some point that you didn't want to share with someone else. Maybe it was a toy you got for Christmas, right? Maybe it was attention, right? Maybe you're getting attention from um, the, the cute fella in your class or youth group or whatever, and then some new girl moves in, and you're like, all of a sudden, he's paying her more attention than you. Or fellas, maybe the same thing happens to you. You and this girl are best friends, but all of a sudden, old dude starts Snapchatting her, and suddenly you're getting left on red, but she's snapping him, right? You don't want to share your attention. You don't want to share your toys from Christmas. Maybe you go to the food truck, and you get a cheeseburger, and that's that one person that every time you have food is going to come up to you and be like, man, let me get a piece. Man, let me get a bite. You know those people, right? Or the people that, that every day in class are like, hey, anybody got some gum? And you're like, no, last piece. But you got like six packs, right? We've all been in high school. I get it. Middle school, whatever. You have been given the gift of eternal life, security in Jesus Christ. Not because you earned it. Not because your mom bought you gum or Santa Claus brought you a cool toy. Right or because you flirted with homeboy long enough to get his attention. No, what God did for you is offer up his son freely as a gift to redeem you, redeem me from our sins, our transgressions, and save us from certain death. That's not something to be stingy with. You can keep your gum, right? You can keep your toy, your PlayStation, whatever. But what God says is that you ought to want to share the gift of eternal life, the hope that's found only in Jesus Christ with other people. 
Because one, it's going to bring God glory. And two, because you love people. Because Jesus loves people. And you want to see them transformed. Are you ready to tell people about the incredible riches of Jesus Christ? We're almost, we're almost finished. We might get done early tonight. Who knows? Crazy, right? I, w- I went back and listened to one of my sermons the other day. It was like 38 minutes long, and I apologize profusely for that. Nobody wants to listen to anybody talk for 38 minutes, least of all me, or most of all me. I don't know. Let's write that. You don't want to listen to me talk for 38 minutes is what I'm saying. All right? The, uh, the fifth thing, if you're taking notes, a Christ-centered missionary has a high view of the church of Christ. And when I, when I say church, capital C, which means the global church, the body of Christ, the body of believers. Not just the local church, but the church in general. All right? Look at um, verse 10. Verse 10. So that through the church, and when Paul says church here, it has a twofold meaning. One is ecclesia, um, which is the Greek word. It's, it's for like a gathering of people with common beliefs that we kind of, that's where we got the word church from, okay? Um, ecclesia is then translated into German later, and we get a German word that sounds kind of similar to church, and that's where we, we got that word from. But what he also means is the body, right, where he, he talks about in his other letters uh, that um, that the church, the body of Christ, is like the human body, right? That every part has a function, right? The human body needs eyes to function. It needs fingers to fun- function. It needs ears to function. And without any of these things, the body is incomplete. Paul says each member is equally important, although their roles may be different. So he means the body, but he also means that, that term ecclesia, the gathering of like-mindedness. So he says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he is realizing Christ Jesus our Lord. The church is the ultimate witness or display of the love of Jesus Christ. The New Testament church gathers together and assembles after Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 because God wills it into being so that the love of Christ might be displayed through how the church acts. The church is to love one another, to love all the saints. Do you remember we talked about that in Ephesians chapter 1? That Paul, remember he, he writes um, in the second half, I think it's, uh, you'll have to check me on this, I think it's verse 15 where Paul uh, of chapter 1 where Paul says, I have heard about your commitment to Jesus Christ your love for Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints, or your faith in Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints. That love for all the saints is the church loving one another, and that message gets from Ephesus back to a prison cell in Rome. Paul hears from a prison cell in Rome that the people of Ephesus love one another and have faith in Jesus Christ. The church has an opportunity and a calling to be a display of Christ's love for humanity. Jesus says, they'll know me by the way you love one another. Right? He also says that, right, you've heard that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Our love for one another, both inside the church and how the church loves people outside the church, are a testament to the world of how Jesus loves people. And so 
in order for us to be Christ-centered missionaries, we have to value the church. As you get older and you go through life, and maybe you're even here now, there are going to be things about the local church and the church as a whole that you're not going to like. Do you realize that at some point, someone in the church is going to do something that either hurts your feelings or offends you? Right? If you don't realize that, then give me enough time and I will hurt your feelings. I've hurt some already tonight. It happens. People are going to upset you. You know why? Because they're humans. And you know why you're going to get your feelings hurt? Because you're a human. And it's going to happen. The danger, though, right, is that we then do one of two things. One, we retaliate and try to hurt someone back, right, or flex our muscles or our wealth or whatever and try to get our way to the detriment of other people and the church. Or we get to the point where we're just like, I've had it with the church. I'm, I'm going home. I'm done with the church. I'm, I'm done with organized religion or, or whatever, you know. Uh, I know we're all super postmodern now, and it's like, I don't, I don't need religion. I just need relationship or whatever. Cool, right? Man didn't create the church. God ordained the church through the New Testament, right? It's not something we created. Now, we have turned it into something that it wasn't intended to be in a lot of ways. But what I'm telling you is that you have to value the church, and when I say the church, that's why I stress to you what Paul's talking about here. I'm not just talking about a, a building or somebody's house that you have a life group in. What I'm talking about is the people and the idea of the body of Christ, which has to function together in unity in Christ because there's value in the church. And the value of the church, this goes back to our first point, the value of the church isn't merely for you. The value of the church, the point of the church is not to serve you or to serve me. The, the purpose of the church is to glorify God and how the church loves one another and loves people. And look, I'm going to tell you right now, if you understand that simple truth 30, 40, 50, 60 years from now, when you're confronted with some conflict in church and you stop and remember that the church ain't about you, that it's about God and it's about other people, perhaps you will stop for a second and say, you know what, this is really stupid to be fighting about. And so I'm going to make it my purpose to serve the church, to serve people and to serve God through my involvement in the church. Because it's not about me. It's not going to be perfect. No church, no local church is going to be perfect. The global church isn't perfect because it's full of imperfect people. Me being chief among those. I mess it up all the time. Yet when we understand that about one another and understand that, that God has put us together so that through the way we love one another and love the world around us, that it's a living testament to how Jesus loves that person then we're fulfilling our purpose as the church. And people's lives can be transformed and God can receive glory and honor in how we engage one another. You have to have a high view of the church. Remember, Paul's writing here 
He's talking specifically to Gentiles right here. Remember, Paul, everything that he said for these first two and a half chapters is about bringing the Jews and the Gentiles together in the church. There couldn't have been two more distinctly different groups of people. And Paul just spent a whole chapter talking about how these walls have been torn down and now God is building a holy temple for the Holy Spirit to dwell inside, made up of Jews and Gentiles, all on top of the teachings of the prophets and with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. Paul is, is reemphasizing here that the church is so important because it's what points people back to Jesus. So I say all to say, don't, don't give up on the church. Don't abandon the church. The, f- the last thing, and we'll, we'll wrap up. To be a Christ-centered missionary, you have to draw near to Christ. Verse 12. Um, go back, it says, um, we realized in Jesus Christ our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. What separates, what really separates um, Christianity, especially um, what we now would refer to as, as Protestant Christianity is this, this idea that what Scripture teaches us in the New Testament is that we, because of Jesus, now have direct access to God the Father. Jesus came, lived a sinless life, died, and was resurrected. And part of what happens there, not only does he then save us from sin and death, right, but he also tears down the barrier between us and God. You know, previously, even in the Old Testament, God is speaking to his people through a prophet, right? He's speaking to them through Moses. He's speaking to them through Nahum or through Habakkuk or through Malachi or Micah or Amos or Obadiah or whoever. He's speaking to them through other people. But now, as a result of Jesus, you and I have direct access to God. And in order to be a Christ-centered missionary, in order to live on mission for God, you have to spend time with God. Through prayer, through being in his word, through gathering together with the church in corporate worship. Like what you, just, what you just did singing songs, right? Part of that is drawing near to God. You are singing spiritual truth taken from scripture. Even if you're just reading the words or even if you're just listening to the music and you close your eyes for a second and you just spend time with God. You and I must draw near to the source of life. We talked earlier about having to know the gospel message, right? We can't know the gospel message without spending time with the one who gave us the message. Or the message itself, which we have, right, in paper or digital form. Spend time drawing near to God. And the the cool thing is that when you earnestly draw near to God, these other five things that we mentioned beforehand, they begin to fall into place, right? The more time you spend with God, the more you're going to understand his grace. The more you're going to be able to process what the gospel looks like. It's all going to feed off of that. So spend time with God. Draw near to him. And all of these other things will begin to to fall into place after that. Let me pray for you and we'll be done, okay? Father, thank you so much for this night. God, I thank you. God, so much for each student, each adult that's here tonight. God, I thank you, God, for all of the, the mission work that they're already doing. God, they go to places on choir tour and they go pack food boxes and they go to Vermont and they go to all these other places, God. But I'm talking about just in their schools, 
in their homes, in their sports teams, and their extracurricular activities. God, you are using these students and these adults in mighty ways. And I know that there are several in here, God, that are being so faithful. God, to seek you out and to point people toward you. God, so I pray that this would not be received as, as some, hey, you're getting it all wrong, this is how you ought to do it, God, but simply an encouragement. God, perhaps we're in a place right now where we're struggling and we're, we can't really find our purpose or where we fit in or we don't feel like you're talking to us or whatever the case may be. God, I pray that we would look through this list, God, look through Ephesians 3, God, and, and see maybe what it is that we're not doing or maybe what we could work on a little more. And God, we would be challenged, we would be encouraged to point people in your direction. God, we love you and we ask all these things in your name. Amen. Hey, love you guys. Y'all are free to go, okay? I was buried beneath my shame Who could carry that kind of weight It was my turn Till I made I was breathing but not Alive. All my failures I tried to hide. It was my dream till I made you come.
Above all distraction, above every doubt, you have my attention here right now. Love from the outset, yours from the start. You broke through the darkness to have my heart. I'm lost to the world. Never fades in a hope that never sways. You'll never let go. This love is wild, wild. You got me reaching for the sky. Now I'm spinning over why you'll never let go. This love is wild, wild. This love is wild. This love is wild, wild. 
exhausted, my hope exhausted, you will be my strength. Your love was never far You made a way to get to me You were the whisper Leading 